Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. We are really excited to share today's interview with you all as we bring on a player whose longevity may be unmatched in tennis history. Her career spanned across three separate decades. She spent seven straight and ten total seasons inside the WTA Top 20. She played something like 20 consecutive U.S. Opens, which I believe is still a record. She also played Steffi Groff in Steffi's final match. The player I'm, of course, talking about Former American great tennis, a former American tennis great, I should say, Amy Frazier, uh, who not only has a stellar career but is from my backyard. She currently works at Franklin Athletic Club. That's about two miles from my parents' house. Someone who I always grew up hearing stories about. Oh, do you see Coach Amy? Do you know what she used to do on tour? How good? I don't want to say she used to be because she still was. Because you'd see her hit these backhands, and you're like, who is this lady? Like, I want to play with her. I want her to be coaching me. And then everyone says, well, actually, she was a top 30 pro, top 20 pro for X amount of years. And you're like, oh. And so for me, it was so much fun to get to explore, uh, you know, the, her career from her perspective. Ask her about some of her most notable matches. What it's like to play that long on tour, how mentally, physically taxing it is, how she adjusted her games to different uh, eras of tennis as the game sped up, slowed down, racket technology, court technology, always changing. I got to pick her brain about all those things and more. You know, she was obviously... Uh, I asked her about unionization and the players' union and how uh, you know calls to unionize have been risen. Obviously, ever since uh, this coronavirus pandemic emerged, and you know these are unionization calls are not new; they've existed in the sport before. And so, I wanted to ask her, you know, what her perspective was on that, what her thoughts on when Venus Williams secured prize money for women at the Grand Slam events, and of course. What she's up to now as well, because again, she is still in Michigan now coaching at Franklin. That's in my backyard and how she's managing to get through quarantine as well. So really fun interview we have in store for you all. Before we get to that, just a couple of quick reminders. A, go subscribe to our YouTube channel. I mean, we're all looking for content to consume, right? We're all following self-quarantine measures. We all are trying to do all our utmost to ensure we get through this pandemic as safely and as healthily as possible. Also, you know, by following these measures as quickly as possible as well. And so I know you all have time on your hands. Go to YouTube.com. You can do it on your phone. I know most of you at this point, I'm sure, are listening to this on your smartphone. Or you can go do it on a computer. It's three clicks, right? You search Cracked Rackets. I guess that's what, how many letters is Cracked Rackets? Off the top of my head, seven plus seven. I think it's 14 letters. You type in those 14 letters. See, it took me longer to explain how many letters are on Cracked Rackets than it would for you to go subscribe. You could have done it by now, and I know how many of you listen to these podcasts. Not all of you are subscribed to that YouTube channel. Just go knock it out of the way. Make Super Producer Daniel Westoff's day. He's up to so many cool things on there. Our Overserved series, looking at all of the comedy that happens in the tennis world on a week-by-week, day-by-day basis. Oh, we poke fun at all of the players, of course, talk about the latest trends and fads going on in the tennis social media universe. So be sure to go check out our newest episode of Overserved, which I believe dropped yesterday. Also, be sure to go check out our newest series, CR Classics, our look at some of the best matches in tennis history. Our first episode talked about Roger Federer's upset win in the 2011 French Open semifinals over Novak Djokovic. This week, we're unveiling episode number two on Wednesday. I'll give you guys the match. 2001 semifinals, Andre Agassi, Pat Rafter, drama. 
to say the least. It's a five-setter. You you know, I hadn't seen the match prior to watching it for this exercise, and I, I had a f- feeling of who won, but I didn't know for sure, and so I really did go into the match blind, uh, and it's an absolute treat. It was a really fun podcast. We did that with Gil, Gro- uh, Gil Gross, excuse me, uh, who you'll learn more about when that pod is released if you don't know him already. So really cool stuff on there. Great shot podcast planned this week. It's going to be a college edition as well with Chris and Matt for later this week. Of course, we've also got mini breaks all week long. This week, I'm exploring the WTA best players in history, the best five-year stretches, and making the case, in my opinion, for the three players who could claim to be the fifth most accomplished player in the WTA in the open era. Why fifth? Why not number you know one through four? Well, I think Graf, Navratilova, um, Chris Everett, and Serena have sort of solidified their places as the four most accomplished. It's really just a battle for five. Uh, now, I'm not including Billie Jean King in that list, but and a couple of others, but I think it really boils down to three players, and they're all on various ends of the spectrum. So really fun exercise there. Hopefully you all are listening, liking, rating, subscribing, reviewing this podcast, the Mini Break, and the Great Shot podcast. But you came here for a Cracked Interviews podcast, and with that, all of that being said, let's get now to our conversation with Amy Fraser. Joining us now on the Cracked Interviews podcast, she ended 17 straight seasons inside the WTA Top 40 in singles. Her 20 consecutive appearances at the U.S. Open, a record in the Open era. She also held the most the record for most Grand Slam appearances until being passed by Venus at the 2016 U.S. Open. A fellow Michigan native, Amy Frazier, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course, it is our pleasure, and you know, we were just joking around before the podcast started. You think you are just a, a coronavirus, we'll say, guest? No, you are have a fascinating career, and so we are really thrilled uh, to have you on the podcast. It is my pleasure. The real reason I brought you on is because I have, you know, the reason everyone will want to listen to this podcast. My first question, Franklin Cider Mill, overrated, underrated, properly rated? Oh, <laughs> Uh, properly rated. You know, I live in Rochester, so we have a lot of cider mills here too. So that I think are underrated. Um, but obviously Franklin cider mill is awesome. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's a fair answer. See my, the reason I ask, I'm going to say slightly overrated better now that they've, you know, made the turn to the 2020s and accept credit card, but a line that long for unpowdered donuts, I'll never understand. Oh, I know, but there's something about the fall and the, the cider and dipping the donut in the cider. I, I, it's I don't know, and the the smell of like the crispness of the air. I I, I always do like a cider mill, but we have we have a lot, quite a few here in Rochester um, that we can ride our bikes to. So that's usually where we hit in the fall. Mm-hmm. No, I, I absolutely. Um, yeah, that that's the thing. The smell. You're right. When you drive by that little four way intersection, you're like, oh, I might have to stop. Like, yeah. it's just a must at that point. That's true. It's very enticing. But you know, again, we are thrilled to have you here to talk about your career. I have a bunch of questions for you, and let's start with this first one. You know, 20 consecutive U.S. Opens, just that many seasons on tour. I'm curious. At, at a certain level, is it more physically taxing to stay on tour that long, or does it become more of a mental drain to just keep up with the routines and have to travel from city to city um i think mentally um it was tough at the end you know i because i i i mean i still love to play 
Um, I always loved flying. That was not an issue, but the traveling and, and packing and unpacking suitcases and living on the road towards the end, it was, um, it got, I think that's kind of what pushed me over the top to maybe to stop at the, at the point that I did. Um, Mm. because the actual tennis, you know, if I could have just driven, you know, four or five hours and played tournaments, yeah, that would have been great. Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, without question. And I'm, I mean, 20 years without a big injury. I'm sure you had nicks and bruises, but how do you manage to sustain? Because, and again, this is not to date you, but this is to say how impressive that is. One of the few people whose careers have spanned three decades. I was like, how am I going to approach saying that? Because I really do mean it as a compliment. Uh, that That's just yeah. so impressive. Um, I, I thank you. Uh, um, I think <laughs> luck, you know, I think was is, is, a, is a big part of it. I mean, I... I think from an early age, you know, there are players that had injuries, you know, from juniors and their bodies were just more susceptible to that. Um, so I think luck was a, a big part of it. I, um, you know, I don't think I, I really overplayed. I kind of kept a very similar schedule, um, you know, and I was fairly consistent with my training, I, but I think everyone is. So I don't know what um, I think luck is more more like it. <laughs> <clears throat> no, that's fair. I mean, and I'm curious because I, I like to go back and, you know, again, I was doing, I think you've played something over 250 tournaments, which is, again, just mazel tov to you. Um, but you go back in time, and I'm curious, do you remember your first main draw win on the WTA Tour? Oh, my gosh, and I should, and I can't believe I don't, actually. Um, so, so I have two answers for you. I can't believe There's... I don't because because like I'm 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 crazy about like I can remember like what outfit I wore against certain players because I had lucky outfits and like I can remember such random things and I can't believe I can't remember that. I, so I, I would have I accepted. Uh, two answers you could have given me who and I'll say the tournament before I say the name you could have given me 87 French Open qualifying which you know that's a win but I don't know if that's a main draw win or you could have given me the event was in Guaruja I I definitely butchered that pronunciation December 87 Pascal Echemende I definitely butchered that uh, pronunciation 6264 I would have never come up with that in a million years no I mean, okay. that's that's half the fun of these podcasts, yeah. going back in time. <laughs> uh, I'm sure at that point it was all Prince Graphites, right? That's just what everyone was using. Exactly. That's <laughs> what I still use, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you and me both. That's why I can say it proudly. Um, it's a Michigan thing. And uh, going back, it's so funny because th- – you know, watching you play, there are a lot of inside-in backhands. And I was like, this really might be a Michigan thing. I'm just, you know, not a big forehand guy either, although maybe that's just a me problem. But for you, uh, you know, 1987, you enter the tour as a teenager. Um, what what goes into that decision at the time to go pro as opposed to pursuing a couple of years in college? Um, you know, I, 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 I took the decision pretty seriously. I, mean, I stayed... Um... amateur through like I was playing professionally through high school and I didn't turn pro until my senior year because I was considering college Um, but at the time I think I was ranked in the 30s when I turned pro I kind of I was enjoying it Um, I was having some success and I kind of thought college would always be there and I wanted to kind of give it a go Um, and so uh, that was just the decision I made I don't you know I think 
I think either one would have been, I think if I had gone to college for a few years or all four years, I think that would have been a, a good decision too. But I'm, I'm obviously happy with the decision I made. Although I didn't ever go back to school. I played so long and then <laughs> by the end it was like, it was sort of, I always thought I would go back always um, or start, I guess I should say college, but I didn't. Would you have been a Wolverine? Um, when I, you mean out of high school? Yeah. No, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm being honest, right? Um, yeah. You know, they weren't the, uh, at the time, now they're uh, phenomenal, but at the time it, it wasn't sort of on my radar. Yeah, you're going to Stanford, right? If you have the choice, it's like, why not? Enjoy California, the great school. Right. California is, you know, that's, it's hard to beat. I love California, so. <laughs> and and for you, as you mentioned, you cracked the top 30 by 1989. You spend eight straight years in uh, the top 20. You know, to make that jump directly out of high school, what is it like when you're going through, you know, the tour? that We see so many young talents now on tour, players like Bianca Andreescu and Sophia Kennan uh, making the jump and winning slams so early in their careers. But is it more difficult, again, to get back to, you know, the translation in the level of tennis you're seeing, or is it just more difficult getting adjusted to being on the road for that long during the year um well i, I think um obviously now i mean it's like amazing what they have done like winning slams so young i think the transition now i think the level of uh, of tennis is so high on tour now i think obviously i think it's tougher now than it was when i um started uh and i think for me, um, I definitely think it was more the traveling, being on the road. Even though I, I didn't go away for long stretches of time, um, but I didn't travel with a coach full time. Um, so, just trying to maintain everything um, while you were at tournaments was different than juniors. Um, and juniors, you know, you obviously you just went, you played your matches, and you came home. So you didn't have to worry about doing something after you lost, or training, or practicing. Um, so that was an adjustment. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. And uh, to f- test your memory again, let's go to the 1992 Australian Open. Number two seed Steffi Graf pulls out of the draw. That is right in your section of the of the draw. You know what goes through your mind? Are you thinking, "Oh, this is my time. I'm making the quarterfinals"? No, because I believe, and I could be wrong, that I had to play Kerry Cunningham first round that year. That's correct. Three and five. Well done. And and so because. Um, obviously that was like, I mean, we played since like 10 and unders. So that was like the biggest thing. I don't even think that the, the, the rest of the draw, I mean, I never really looked ahead, but I don't even think that was sort of on my radar because that was like, we can't, couldn't believe we were like playing in Melbourne when, <laughs> you know, we practice together here all the time. So, yeah. No, and then obviously you go on to have success in that round. You know, so early in your career to make a quarterfinal at that point. What does that do for your confidence? Um, it was. I mean, obviously, it was. Um, it did a lot to to win that many matches at in a row at a Grand Slam. Um, you you know, it definitely helps your belief in yourself and and maintaining a, a high level for um, more than a match or two. Um, obviously helps your mindset going into the rest of the year and and i think uh, i'm pretty sure 92 was a pretty good year for me so i think it started the year off um you know as a great building block for the rest of the year also 
Mm-hmm. And for you, was it because I, I'm sure you weren't training in Michigan at the time, but going from, you know, playing indoors 90% of the year to then transitioning, playing outdoors all the time, going down to that Australian summer, what is that transition like? Um, yeah, that was, I would usually, I was always in Michigan in December, but I'd always stop in California on my way to Australia and practice and train for a week to 10 days just to play outside and kind of break up the trip. Um, and so definitely when you, when you got to Australia, it was a little bit of a you know shock to the system when it's a hundred degrees <laughs> and, um, but playing in Australia is amazing. And I, I think, um, I think that consensus among the players, you know, we all loved and I think they still do love playing there. Um, it's it's such a, a great trip and great way to start the year. And the tournaments are so well run and fun. So um, the heat really you you got over that quickly. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. I mean, just playing in those stadiums has to be the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, they are um, such enthusiastic tennis fans there. So it's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And for you in that time period, because, you know, late 80s, early 90s was sort of the end of Martina, the end of Chris Everett, but the start of Steffi Graf and Monica Sellis. And, you know, what did you think about the the level of play at that time on tour? What was it like transitioning from players like Navratilova and Everett to Graf and Sellis, where the game styles are just so different? Yeah, I, I think... Um definitely as, as, as technology sort of changed and the game became more physical, the, the style of play changed. Um, and so, you know, that was sort of an adjustment through the years that I played, but I mean, uh, gr- playing Graf and Stellis at the time, like, I mean, they just, they hit the ball so hard, right? Stellis just, I mean, she crushed the ball in Steffi's forehand and then that sliced backhand. So those are, those were types of, of pace and shots that, you know, I had never seen really. Um, so that was obviously, obviously they were, you know, some of the best ever. So, um, it, but it was certainly fun to get to, get to play against them. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious because again, over, as you mentioned with the technology and the slowing down of courts and all the players being able to hit the ball harder, how did the game change over the course of your career? You know, a player who got started in 1980s, how different were they than the young players you were playing in, you know, 2005, 2006? Right. Um, yeah, I think when I started playing, I mean, there were, you know, a lot. I mean, the serve and volley style of play was very prevalent. Um, I remember in one of my, uh, you know, first tournaments that I played, like a qualifying of a of a, a pro tournament. And I mean, it was the first time I ever saw a slice backhand. A lot of people. Um, so and by the time I finished playing, obviously, there you know, serving and volleying wasn't really <laughs> prevalent on the women's tour. Um, you know, most people, I mean, obviously there still were one-handed backhands, but uh, most people were crushing the ball and even more so now. Um, so, and it was obviously a lot more physical. The The off-court training side of it happened kind of in the middle of that. Um, so I, I think, you know, when I first started playing the tour, I remember practicing passing shots a lot of my practice by the end of, of when I was playing, it really wasn't, you know, I obviously still practiced them, but it wasn't um, a, a main theme in my practice. 
I was watching, uh, I think it was the 92 Wimbledon second round that you were playing, or maybe it was the third round you were playing, Mary Jo Fernandez, and the, you serve and volley on a point, and you miss a volley just wide, or at least it was call wide, and the look on your face when you miss that volley is priceless. Highly recommend you go check out the YouTube video, oh, because I, I, I don't know if you don't like the call, if you're just like, how did I miss that one? But um, no, you're, you're definitely right. And you, and you got to see, you know, so many different players ascension. And I'm curious for you again, because again, watching the tennis, I, I see a lot of inside out backhands or a lot of inside in backhands running around the forehand. And it, I feel like we do see a lot more of that style of play now, whereas before, you know, early 90s, it's a lot of, as you mentioned, slicing and coming into the net behind that. How did you adjust, you know, how do you adjust your game style mid-career for the different style of player that started to emerge and just, you know, as new technology and court speeds changing as that all unfolds while you're playing? You know, I think when it was happening, I think it didn't, I mean, obviously things were changing, but it was, it, while you were in it, it doesn't, it didn't seem, because it, you know, that um, obvious, right? Obviously you, you adjusted what you were working on, you adjusted, you know, maybe, I mean, I really wasn't a, I didn't, I mean, like string tension, all that, that really wasn't my thing, but, you know, you obviously adjusted things like, like that, but while you're in it, looking back on it, it seems so obvious now, but while you're in it, I I think you just, you're, you're practicing to, to keep up with the times. And if you're not getting better and not um, progressing, you're, you're obviously not going to be able to compete. Um, My game style, I think, because I wasn't a player and I wasn't, you know, I didn't necessarily hit the ball so hard. I think I kind of managed to just hopefully improve because, I mean, I liked the baseline. I came in some, but not, you know, excessively. So I was able to um, kind of uh, luckily succeed kind of through that. Change. I like that. Not I like that. Not excessively. That, yeah, you you can't you can't come to the net excessively. I agree with that. That's a good uh, that's a good phrase. I'm going to keep that one in there. Um, I I do want to ask because uh, this week on uh, one of our other podcasts we're talking about a bunch of different players, and one of the players we're going to talk about is Monica Sellis. And you know, 1993, you were on the tour when she was stabbed during a tournament, and you know that's one of those where were you moments, and it, it happened before. I'm born I was born just a little uh I guess for so I I didn't get to live through that that wasn't meant to be like a I'm young Uh, that's not what I was looking for there but (laughs) you know I I I wasn't there in the moment and when that happened I can because that's one of those culturally significant impactful moments in sports that I'm sure had ramifications beyond tennis but being on tour during that time you know what was it like to work through that incident um well I think I mean First, you, I just, it, it, it was so shocking, right? Um, I think, uh, even now, I don't, like, I, as you're asking that question, I'm thinking about, like, you know, back to that time, like, you just, it was, it, it was, we were, it was overwhelming, and, and that's just for someone, I mean, I, I don't really, I don't know her, I don't, I'm not friends with her, like, you just couldn't believe that happened to someone, a co-worker, like, in the, the tennis arena it was it was just absolutely shocking um and then the aftermath of that obviously security on tour right (laughs) changed dramatically um from that point moving forward um so i'd say that was you know just the logistics of it that was uh but the emotional um part of it i think 
even now you can tell him like you just you you can't believe that happened even now it's just crazy mm-hmm. no it's and shocking. i think amazing and... amazing how she was able to come back and play and um and um succeed i think is is fantastic and you sort of referred to it there and not to say you know because anytime something that traumatic happens it's obviously going to affect you you know on the court off the court but you know prior to that moment just how good was monica sells because she was you know you look at just her she she was number one she was winning all of these slams did you see an extended stretch of dominance coming from her in that time oh obviously i mean i think she was um you know i think and it's unfortunate just for you know tennis fans for all of us because that Salas Graf rivalry, I think, would have been, I mean, phenomenal to watch. And I think she was still improving. And um, I think it would have been, you know, it's all, you know, one of those what ifs, like, that I think we all you know, lose out on tennis and everything, because it would have been fun to watch. But obviously, she would have won a ton more slams, I think. Mm-hmm. Amy Fraser, one in nine against Monica Sellis, one in six against Staffy Graf, but wins <laughs> against both. Pretty impressive. I, you know, those are the ones you, you put the feather in the cap, right? You're like, yeah, I, I got it. I was pretty good. I could ball. <laughs> well, I don't know. There's an asterisk next to that Graf one, right? Though, because I didn't really <laughs> win the last point because she retired. So uh, I don't know. I, you know, I always meant that's that's not. I don't know. I I don't take full you know credit for that one. <laughs> Uh-huh. That's fair, but it was, I know, her last match, I believe, on tour. And, you know, uh, we've seen Wozniacki retire earlier this year. And on the men's side, guys like Ferrer, Bird, it's stepping down. That was a generation of players clearly coming to its end. What's it like to play, you know, some in, in a final match for someone like Steffi Graf going into the match? Are you nervous? Are you like, oh, like, do I give her this one? And then she'll give me a little wink in the locker room and say thank you. Like, I, I just feel like that must change the atmosphere heading into it. No, well, no, I mean, because we didn't know. I mean, no one knew. Like, I mean, I, I, she, I had no idea she was retiring. And I just, I mean, on a personal level, like, I, I mean, she, I have, you know, she was so amazing. And I obviously never did that well against her until that, that match. And I, on a personal level, it's one of the best matches I've ever played. And so when she just sort of, it was, I think it was like 2 1 in the third she just said, I, you know, I have to retire. I mean, I just thought she was retiring the match. And then, you know, a a few days later, she announced her retirement. I had no idea. So. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, that's true. That was another one of those moments where you're like, really? She's retiring? I can only imagine that had to have shocked as well. Yes, that was a, that was a Mm -hmm. big shock, I think, for, Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't see it coming, but. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, all right, let's fast forward to the 2004 Wimbledon because now number 31 seeded Amy Fraser knocks out Karolinko straight sets, then Webley Smith eight six in the in the second uh, in the third set in the second round. Again, well done. Um, and then you knock off the two seed six four in the third, and you play you know a young woman by the name of Maria Sharapova. At that time, you know that match. Uh, I think she wins four and five, but. You know, playing someone that young in the fourth round of stage like that, did her performance from then on, did it surprise you to see her go on to have the success she did? Um, no, I think I think from a young age she, I, um, you know, was. I think her results were um, always very strong, and I mean her game was always very strong. So I really wasn't surprised, um, and I think I played her. 
before that in like challengers and stuff. So I, it wasn't the first, I believe it wasn't the first time I played her. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, no. And you know, for you, I feel like throughout your time, there's always been a strong crop for American women's tennis. There's always multiple players who are Americans who are competing at the top of the game. And, you know, how about, is that something, do you judge yourself? Because as you mentioned, uh, when we went back to the 92 Australian Open, uh, playing someone who you knew so intimately from your time in the juniors, was uh, beyond even just the, the world ranking, were you always competing against your fellow American contemporaries? For sure, yeah. I think, um, um, I was lucky enough, I think the crop that I came up through juniors with, um, that was a lot of us had some success on the tour, which was great. I think we all pushed each other. I think um, just having familiar faces out there was great. And um, I think that, that I was always lucky that there were so many good, great American players that you were obviously trying to compete with you know, on a friendly level, I don't ever felt it. I didn't feel like it was ever contentious, but I think it's great to have people around you having success. I think it, it kind of inspires you and, and that competitive instinct is always, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And we see this crop of so many talented young Americans now, you know, I mentioned Kenan earlier, but Goff as well, and Isamova, mm-hmm. there, there are so many out there. Um, what do you, you know you look at the way american tennis and do you think it's harder for hegemony might not be the right word but just for one country to dominate the sport as american women did for so long american men obviously in the 90s was their uh, peak as well and things have dropped off from them do you think the game has gotten more international are we just not going to see one country dominate the way they once did for sure i think um it's. I mean, if you just look at where all the, the tournaments, when I started, I mean, I could play pr- pretty much in the U.S. and play a full schedule with the exception of the, you know, Grand Slams. Um, and I think just that the tour is, is, is worldwide um, much more now, I think, which breeds all the other countries, you know, developing players, which is, I think, the best thing for the game. I, I think it, it, you have, different uh styles different surfaces people growing up on red clay or indoors and i think it just makes it more exciting um i do think that probably you know it's going to be tough to dominate and have you know four of the top five in in the world from one country i think that's going to be fairly tough but you know it might happen <laughs> yeah no definitely i mean it, hopefully we just get tennis again soon right i think that's at this point what we're all I'm, shooting for right i know uh, yeah it's yeah, um, and not to get I, I, I was going to say, I do have some corona-related questions for you, but I'm trying to save them for the end. Um, you know, one thing we always hear, I guess this will be the first one, is uh, tennis players, tournaments, all these things, they're all individual contractors. Every person who participant in tennis is their own entity and so uh it's hard for things like this that affect the broader sport to collaborate to try and sync up ideas and scheduling and all of these different things and so of course that's lead to renewed talks of unionizing players whether it just be a wta union an atp union a joint players union uh i'm sure you know, those talks aren't new, right? Unionization no. was talks of when you were on tour, and I'm curious mm-hmm. what your thoughts on the subject are. Oh, yeah, I think, um, you know, I think tennis is so unique because it is so, you know, individual. We pay for our training. We pay our expenses. We pay our coaching, you know, and then the prize money at each tournament. And I think um, it's, 
it's always been the issue and I, I from you know just reading and from the outside it continues to be the issue just there's so many moving parts right um, between the tournaments and the uh, grand slams and the ATP and the WTA and um, the interests of, of, of everyone has to be accounted for because it's you know the success of everyone you know if the tournaments aren't successful there aren't tournaments and then there's nowhere to play it's you know it all it all, it all works together and uh, it's I think that's always been the issue and it's um you know obviously the more unified the players are the the better um chance they have of 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 fighting for their you know needs and and wants um but i i i think i i think the problems are still the same really um you know it, it just on a much bigger scale now the tournaments are making so much more money the prize money is so much more so it's probably more difficult uh, as i talk it out in my head <laughs> <laughs> no yeah the ideas are like the slams would you know because the slams the usta is paid for by the us open right and all of these different right. organizations it's the big events and the revenue they make that drives everything else um right but yeah it, you know i i completely agree with you there and it's just at a certain point it's like where is the money going to come from and uh, you know something i've spit around is i feel like it's one of the unknown parts of the tennis finance world is the market of appearance fees right how much tournaments are playing payers uh to just show up at their events to play Right. I feel like that's where the money's got to come from, and not to, and that's when you start to say, you know, you're asking really the top ten players, guys like Federer and you know players like Serena and just all these top players to say, hey, we need you to play tournaments just for the sake of the sport, and you're not going to get compensated. I feel like that's always where union issues come to a halt. It's and with all due respect, uh, you know, they they are they've earned that right to that opinion. If you're going to be that good at your craft, you should be paid the most to do it. Um, but I feel like that's the problem with unionization, right? It's just the experience of a top 10 player and a top you know someone outside the top 200 are just so different yeah i think i i mean i think that's the reality is and and is that the the people pay the tickets to see you know not not that they don't pay to see you know players like myself but you know the top 10 players um you know we have have a lot uh, to be, um, they, they bring a lot of people into the seats and they bring, um, you know, tournament directors wanting to have them at their tournaments. So there is, a, I think, a, um, I always felt so sort of thankful and respectful. I think there, you know, but there is, there is a disconnect there, obviously, um, uh, between maybe some players that are struggling and they're getting, a, a you know, appearance fees and 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 there is a disparity in finances and all of that which you know it's a it's a tough a tough conversation you know um uh and i obviously am, am out of the loop now but i don't think that's different from when we were you know when i was playing i mean it was it was a very similar the top 10 players had to commit to you know so many tournaments a year certain level tournaments and i'm sure that still is going on because the tournament directors want those players there and they're the reason they're holding the tournaments because they sell the tickets. So it's it's a tough tough dis- discussion, you know. On the other hand, with you only have ten players, you don't have a tour because there's you know you need <laughs> everybody. So it's it's um, uh, you know, I and I don't think anyone has come up with an answer yet. <laughs> I 
Yeah. No, that's what I said. In quarantine, now's the time to come up with answers, right? It's like we're all down, we're all together. That's why uh, all of these things come back to mention. And, uh, you know, you talk about all of these different things. Uh, finances uh, for the two are, you know, one of the big things that happened right after you retired was when someone like Venus Williams demanded that the tournaments pay out equally at the Grand Slams for both the men and the women. And, you know, finally achieving that, that was step one, right? You know, I, I think that happened a little bit after your career ended but to see that step be taken how you know beneficial how great was that for the women's game i mean obviously fantastic i mean um uh it's it's sort of scary how you know the female athletes you know getting equality it's um it's fantastic and the work that everyone has done to get that is is great obviously there's still work to do but obviously every step is 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 a, is a good step <laughs> <laughs> absolutely I'm, I'm what i was thinking when i asked that question is just imagine 20 straight u.s opens with that guaranteed same check that would have been <laughs> just incredible <laughs> yeah yeah sometimes you see that you see the prize money now right so but but um you know but that's 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 everything is 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 uh it's it's been a long time since i played so you know i'm sure all the yeah. expenses are a lot higher than when i played also, so. <laughs> that, that's true my counterpoint is i know december 2015 usda national women's 40 hardcore champions uh you were the winner of that tournament so i feel like there's a comeback in there there's there's another appearance in in the tank for you <laughs> i i don't know i i could barely walk after the 40 nationals so i'm not sure that's the cards but um you know that was so fun to go play and um i that was a blast and i i foresee in the future playing more just like that just because that was super fun it was in la jolla you know at the time my daughter was four we made a trip of it it was great so. mm-hmm. yeah if are you eligible to play USTA leagues? Or are they like, sorry, no Grand Slam quarterfinalists? Like, could I get you on if Franklin starts a 5-0 team and I come home? Can I be like, yeah, we're, we brought – you've yeah. never met her before. It's this girl, Amy. Like, she, you probably haven't heard of her. I, yeah, you know, I don't know if the, 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 the leagues are, are, are where I want to go. But, um, you know, they, 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 I've heard, you know, they're a little hardcore in the USTA leagues. But um, I, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's legal or not. I don't. I, I think you know. I, um, I don't know. So yeah. Well, the offer is extended. That's true. Okay. But yeah, we we both know never get between a USTA league member and their court time. Uh, uh, especially, yes. yeah, Southeast Michigan. It gets testy <laughs> uh, to say to say the least. And I know for you, uh, you know, after your career, you've gone into coaching at the Franklin Athletic Club, which uh, you know I was telling you beforehand, it's less than two miles from my house. Right. Uh, so it's a place I know quite well. And I'm sure we, you've been like, oh, who's this guy with the nasty forehand, nasty in the bad way? And it was like, hey. Amy, <laughs> that's me uh but that's you know a story for another time but why was continuing to coach tennis something that appealed to you um well I think um you know I love tennis (laughs) that's the first thing (laughs) I think you know transitioning um out of playing um when quite honestly I I have always loved the sport and I love you know love the people in the sport and so um you know, coaching was, was sort of the obvious next step, you know, on a totally selfish level, you know, I grew up playing, like I go to the club and, you know, most of the people there, you know, I've known my whole life. It's a very, um, it's a, it's fun. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm 
part-time because I have a nine-year-old and, but it's, um, I, I couldn't imagine not being around tennis, um, because I, I, I love it. So it's, and to help, you know, the next, um, you know, juniors is, is, is super fun and, um, you know, uh, I enjoy it. <laughs> no, as you say, definitely. And I have a theory that ten, at a certain point, if you're a good at tennis beforehand, but B, you know, you coach long enough that I, I don't think I've ever seen a coach miss a volley at the net. And I, I think, you know, Armand Molino, uh, I yep. happen to have, you know, I know him a little bit yep. as well. And the best is whenever you're hitting like a baseline drill with him and he misses a volley, he'll just start mumbling at him. So you know how Armand can be. Um, but right. is that just, I just feel like you guys stop missing bump volleys at a certain point. So it's proof that through repetition, you can master anything, right? Yeah, that's very true. It's it's funny though because I I don't like I hit from the baseline most of the time. So <laughs> I um as you're saying that I was thinking, gosh, I I because that's my comfort zone. But it's true, you get very good at not moving your feet and standing in one <laughs> corner and not missing. It's and it's like you you know you do as I say, not as I do. I'm not hitting my split steps. I'm not moving, but I'm not missing either. But you know you open. You need to hit your split steps and you need to get to the ball, right? So. <laughs> no, I, I'm telling you, Armand will – because, like, he'll start missing and because he worked with my little brother and he just starts going right. – like, you just get so angry yeah. at it. I can like, hear yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, uh -huh. we could do 10 minutes on Young. I guess my – again, this is a personal question. When Ed had a mullet – um, what was the reaction around town? Because, you know, Ed is someone who I was a little bit closer with. He coached our high school team. Yeah. Um, I just, I can't even imagine him with a mullet. Yeah, you know, but Ed's not someone, at least, you know, because he's a little bit older than I am. And mm -hmm. so I, 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 I feel like he's not one that I really ribbed too much. So, um, you know, that was from my standpoint, but. I'm sure yeah. from his contemporaries, um, he got, you know, some ribbing. Oh <laughs> I can do everyone at Frisky. You got to get down like Saturday night. Like, it's just <laughs> all the same. I mean, I know every every phrase he'll go with. Unfortunately, right. they're burnt into my brain. Yeah. Um, but in terms of because you went through, you know, what it's like to train as a top junior, try and make that transition for the pro tour. Do you think it's harder to do that now, particularly at a young age? And you sort of referenced this earlier than it was, say, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, you transitioning to the pro tour. Is that what yeah, right? just yeah. training. Yeah. Okay. And at a young age. Um, yeah, I think, I think, um, I just think the level of, of, of competition and play is so high and so physical um, it takes a little bit more time to, to mature and get strong enough and, and to be able to compete at that level. I mean, and then when you see, you know, uh, the young Americans now, the, the girls, you know, golf and Kenan and all of that, it's, it's amazing to see because I think it, it happens less and less now, but not that it's impossible. Um, you know, you're still going to have great players coming through. Mm -hmm, definitely. Um, all right, home stretch of questions. I promise for you. Um, again, I'm looking at these career records against the top ranked players. Oh, In your opinion, who? No, no, no. <laughs> they, they're impressive. We're gonna two and one against Justine Ennin, who we did a podcast on yesterday. That's that's really. I um, swear for the first time, that's really fucking good. 
<laughs> yeah, but if you look at when, you know, this is what I should say, sir, but if you look at when I played her, <laughs> they were when she was coming up, right? Those wins aren't when she's number one in the world. So it's a little skewed, right? I mean, um, but um, sure, I will, I'll, I'll take that one. But it's, you know, again, asterisk next to it. <laughs> Yeah. Look, our listeners may not have known that. They didn't want to go do the research. But I guess uh, in in your mind, who was your biggest American contemporary at the time? Because I see a lot of Frazier-Pierce matches and four and three against Pierce. That's a legit four and three. Uh, yeah, I think because we played that was over a, a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You cut out. So sure. I missed part of that question. I just heard the Pierce thing. <laughs> I would say, who would you argue, even outside of Mary Pierce, but was your biggest rival as a fellow American during your career? Oh. So you mean as another American player? Cause, um, yeah. Or it can be not American. Who is your biggest rival on tour? Curious. Oh, that, I mean, that's so hard because, again, it's like you um, – uh, um, I don't – oh, my gosh. Like, I just remember, like, I played Natalie Toziat so many times. And I don't know if that's skewed <laughs> in my memory, like, that I didn't play that much. But I just, she was always a, a hard player for me to play because of her game style. But I played her a lot. So someone, um, but an American player. I mean, I, you know, the, the, the people I grew up with, you know, Carrie Cunningham, Ann Grossman, um, those type of players. I think we still playing on tour was always fun and we always were very competitive so uh mm-hmm. no those are the other two members of my 5-0 team by the way just to incentivize <laughs> you further to play i'm bringing back the squad um oh my yeah it, it'll work perfectly um okay i guess uh, again home stretch here for you and you know these questions uh, this might be where you could swear at me but if you could get okay. a win over either davenport serena venus or sharapova who do you pick oh um Uh, I see I had a match point against Venus once and um and so like I feel like that match sort of I remember like what happened I remember the match so like I would have loved to have won that match because I felt like I played really well that match but it was yeah so it that's so hard though so I'm gonna I'll go with that one just because I remember that very clearly (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I she believe had a great that was Stan- to get out of it was stanford yes Seven, six, and third stanford night. 2000 quarterfinals yeah oh that, sorry i have it in front of me now yes yeah, seven uh six seven six four seven six not to relive it um it's, yeah it's a good okay. match yeah it was yeah <laughs> and that yeah. that does nothing to like it's just that i yeah okay yeah it's, i mean semifinals the next week in san diego so you know where again you played wait is that venus back-to-back weeks dang well done. That's a, that's a that's a draw. You knock off Hingis in the quarterfinals too. That's a nice little stretch. I liked playing in California. I love California. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is so interesting because for me, there was always an adjustment. I mean, again, why would I would compare our two tennis experiences? That might have been the most arrogant thing I've ever no. done on a pod. I apologize. No. Um, but having grown up playing in Michigan, the transition from indoors to outdoors 
it, it always happens for me because I grew up playing indoors. That's just right. where I'm most comfortable. Right. I, I'm sure you trained at other places throughout the year, but at what point did playing outdoors become no different for you? Because I'm sure there was a period where indoors you were more comfortable. Yeah, I think, well, obviously indoors is easier. There's no elements, right? But for that, I guess we would say that because we grew up indoors. Yeah, but... I, I feel like that was a dig at me, but I'll take it. Right. Sorry. <laughs> so, I know you have, the, you have players from Florida that grew up on clay might not like playing indoors, you know, like we like the fast indoors. But the, I mean, all the, you know, most of the tournaments were outdoors, so it feels very normal. And the California swing in the pros was always in the summer, so there was no adjustment, right? So, um, uh, I guess probably when I started a couple years into playing, um, because, you know, most of the terms were outdoors. I, it didn't phase me, really. I could be practicing here at home and, and go, and it was okay as long as I had a couple of days. Mm-hmm. No, completely. Um, all right, last two for you. I, I mentioned all the streaks at the beginning. I think it's 18 consecutive years in the top 100, um, 17 in the top 40. Uh, all, I think it was eight seasons in the top 20, all of these different things. A, do you have lists of those accomplishments in your head? You're like, yeah, I, I still have some records I hold on to. And B, and this is the worst part of the question, but you know, to, to be in the top 20 for that long, and to just not get into that top 10, how frustrated, you know, is that something that <laughs> frustrated you through? I, sorry. <laughs> I feel no, fast, no, but... I will answer the first one first. I, some of the things okay. you're saying, I didn't really even know. So it doesn't, you know, um, I loved playing and I loved competing for that long and that I was able to do it and have some success was amazing, but I don't really, I didn't, some of that stuff I didn't even know, like the top, you know, years. So that's, fun to know um my goal always one of my goals you know I I set goals you know each year every six months assessing them and you know when I was in the teens top 10 was always my goal so to get to 13 and not get to 10 obviously you know I would have loved that but you know there's that's the part of why sports and setting goals are you know there's some you don't achieve so um, it doesn't eat at me at all. <laughs> I look back on, on my my tennis uh, career with great fondness, but definitely that was something that was every year when I was in that when it was realistic um, was definitely a goal that, and I just never got there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I still outstanding career. Did you know when Venus played her seventy second Grand Slam at the twenty sixteen U.S. Open? Did you realize like, oh, she's about to pass me? Um, someone told me when it was happening. I didn't, I, I didn't know. And I think it's, um, so fitting because I think it's so amazing that she's still playing and I hope she keeps going and I love to watch her play and to have success for that long. I think that that's, she, she, I'm so happy that she, (laughs) she deserves every record out there. So. And again, to the testament to your career, you know you're doing something right when Venus is the one passing you to break your record. You're like, yeah, I I, I nailed that one. Uh, so that's awesome. Um, all right. You had the chance, and this is, again, for something we're working on, Crack Rackets, and you got to play through this era. So I would love to hear your opinion. You saw the tail ends of Martina and Everett. You saw Steffi. You saw the beginning of Serena. Uh, in your opinion, you know, who was the more inti- intimidating might be the wrong word, but who was the diffi- most difficult to game plan against when you, because I believe you played all four, uh, you know, when you're going into a match against one of them, who were, did you think to yourself, oh, I'm, I'm really in trouble in this one? I, 
Um, it might be all of them. Yeah, yeah for the I'm record. just, I'm just trying to, I, um, yeah, uh, all of them would be the clear <laughs> answer. You know, I think for different reasons, though, obviously, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, and, and that's why they were, you know, number one and some of the, you know, of the greatest of all time. But I think, um, you know, I, probably, you know, Gra on a personal level, like Graf's back end, like that was just really hard for me to handle. Like, so that was always a difficult, you know, she just kept it so low and it, 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 it bit through the courts so much that it was always just on a personal, my game, it did not match up to my game, you know, um, you know, Martina's serve, a lefty serve was always, you know, a trouble for my forehand. So, so I think each one, Serena, like, I mean, you know, I'm sure you've seen some of my scores there with Serena, oh and one, <laughs> no, you know, one and two. So, you know, just the sheer, you know, just getting blown off the court was a worry, you know, because she just was so, you know, so good um, and everything. So I think that's too hard. I know this is such a wimpy answer to not give an answer, but that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> no, that, that works for me. That's fine. Do you think healthy Monica Seles ends up in the same grouping as those in terms of Grand Slam titles? Do you think she would have gotten into that, you know, 15, 16 range? She was as talented as them? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. That's the answer I was looking for. Yeah. Um, so, so no, that, that works perfectly. All right. Uh, last one for you. I, again, you are currently a coach at Franklin. And so for all of our fans out there who may not have the opportunity to work on their game, um, what are some things you can do around the house to that relate to tennis? You know, if someone texts you, it's like, Hey, Amy, I want, I want to work on X. What, what strategy might you give them? Oh, you know, I think we're all kind of, you know, trying to stay, you know, mentally sane and, and physically active. And, and so, um, you know, I think for tennis, like, I think jumping rope is amazing, you know, so um, that would be something I would recommend, you know, I mean, you can always go and, and, you know, hit against your garage, your basement wall, just to kind of keep the racket in your hand you know and you know like when you haven't played for a month or two and you, it sort of feels foreign when it's even in your hand so just to keep it in your hand and bounce the ball and, and hit some volleys against the wall I think will help the transition back to when we can all get back out on the court um uh so with that being said my rackets have been in the closet so <laughs> <laughs> um but uh you know I do think that that um just for for you know some fun right grab you know a parent or a brother or a sister and you know just you know go out and hit some in the driveway just for fun you know some reflex volleys or something would be fun mm -hmm. now for me it's my rule is 10 push-ups before i open the fridge because <gasps> it's gonna happen at least you know six seven times a day so yeah. at least get <laughs> a workout out of yeah, it yeah we've been setting the my daughter and i've been setting the the timer every 30 minutes and we either run up and down the stairs, you know, five times, or we do some push-ups or planks, you know, just to like, uh, make, and it, it's funny how, how, how it breaks up the day, you know, and she's doing math and she, the buzzer goes and she's so excited to go up and down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is awesome. Well, Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I hope you and your family stay safe and healthy. And again, when it's non-coronavirus pandemic, I'm bringing you on for part two just to prove my point from okay. earlier on because well, this was a blast. Okay, well, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, of course. Take care and stay okay, safe. Thanks. Bye.
Hope you enjoyed my conversation with the one and only Amy Frazier. And of course, we are so grateful here at Crack Rackets to have the chance to talk to her. Uh, obviously, you know, someone who is in the top 20 for as uh, top 20, top 40, top 100 of the WTA rankings for as long as she was. Just so much insight into how the game has changed and what it takes to sustain a career like that. So, so just a lovely person. I mean, we shared so many laughs in that conversation. So I hope you enjoyed it. And again, a huge thank you to Amy for taking the time to chat. I am determined to have her back on the show post-quarantine just to prove my point because she was that exciting of a guest. And, you know, we'll try and get her as often as we can. I and mean, she's up to stuff, but certainly, you know, maybe she'll call. I'll call in a favor from one Michigander to another uh, but of course, as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, we continue to try and crank out as much high quality content as possible here at Crack Rackets to provide all of you tennis fans with just a brief distraction or just to get your mind off of the stresses of everyday life right now. Hopefully you're listening to our Cracked Interviews podcast of the past couple of weeks. Players like Chris Woodruff, I should say Tennessee coach, former ATP top 30 player. We're really diving into the 90s here. I kind of like it, Westoff. Um, that was just a just, I had, sorry, that was addressed to Westhoff. I am just saying he's across the table from me. I kind of like it. Anyways, moving on from that, players like Dennis Kudla, Bethany Maddox-Sands, Claire Liu, WTA Player Council, and Top 100 player Christy Ahn. Uh, that and more, and of course, all of our cracked interviews over the past couple of years, I think at this point, still do really hold up. So it's a nice roll of the deck for you all to go check out. Of course, great shot podcast-wise, CR Classics, Rocking and Rolling. We first look at the 2011 semifinal at the French Open where Federer knocks off Djokovic. This week, it's the 0-1 Wimbledon semifinal, Rafter versus Agassi. That's going to be really exciting, both a podcast and on our YouTube channel, which of course you subscribe to at the beginning of this podcast. But in case you forgot or you just really wanted to listen to the Fraser podcast first, I'm reminding you again, go subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can find Overserve there. I think we're on episode five where we look at all of the comedy that happens on a week-to-week basis. And of course, at a time like this, laughs more valuable now than ever. And you know, so much great player content is being developed. We try and poke fun, have fun at its expense. Hopefully you all will enjoy that as well. And of course, you know, like, rate, subscribe, review all the podcasts and the YouTube channel. But if you need the more immediate updates, you can always find us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Cracked Rackets. You want to contact me in particular to talk about this week's mini break series. You think you can guess who the three players I'm talking about to compete for that spot of the fifth most accomplished player of the open era in WTA history. Uh, feel free to message me as well at Great Shot Podcast. Always appreciate all of the interactions we have with you fans, all of the support you continue to give us throughout these times. Huge shout out to all of you Patreon subscribers as well. We had a couple of new ones over the past couple of weeks, and for you guys to do that at a time like this, it really does mean the world to us here at Cracked Rackets. And of course, it can't be Cracked Rackets if I don't mention my super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff who have a f***ing job to do, as they always do day in, day out. They kill it. They make all of this content possible. So, again, if, if the, all of the support you guys send, I appreciate it more for them than anything else because they deserve all of the credit in the world. There will be a day when, you know, we get back to normal media. And I think we were all watching, what, there was Horse this weekend on ESPN, top basketball players playing Horse. And, you know, it's a very admirable thing, but had they had super producer Daniel Westhoff on the job, it would have been higher quality audio and video content because he just knows how to kill it. And, you know, 
It's just he can do it with an iPhone. You give him some expensive equipment, you'd have no idea what he'd be able to produce. So shout out to them as always. But for our lovely guest again, Amy Fraser, who we are so grateful to have the chance to talk to for Super Producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. That's today's Cracked Interviews, folks, and we will see you next time. Thanks, everyone. But right now, it's star time.